Would you join me as we pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word? Father, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to gather together. Thank you already for feeding us uh, from your word. As we have already read the Psalms, uh, as we read even in the, uh, the book of Acts, of the person of Jesus and how death could not hold him uh, and how he rose victorious from the dead. It is the risen Christ uh, that we look to this morning. And that, Father, we ask that you would continue to help us to see here in this psalm. Uh, we ask that you would continue to feed us and shape us more in the image of the risen Christ. We pray it in his name and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure if you know this yet, but this is an election year. Actually, it's a presidential election year. I'm sure you are aware of that. Everywhere you look, political signs dot the landscape. The news, social media, your parents, your friends, it comes up often. And there is no end to the information available on a given candidate. While some of the information comes from the candidate's opponents, much of the information we receive about someone running for office is from that person and their campaign. They want to get the details out to the public as to why you and I should vote for them. And so they send out what they think you want to know. We learn about their family, their education, their experience, and what they're passionate about, or changing, or what they will change if they are elected. Often the candidate themselves gets on the stump and pitches their political plan, promises that if elected, they will do for you. Things they will change from the current administration. And even stating boldly, if I am elected, I will do this or that on the first day in office. Bold promises. Exuding confidence in oneself. However, those who want to see those promises come to fruition attach themselves to that candidate and cast their vote for him and his promises. In Psalm 132, we read some pretty bold promises from David the king of Israel and Judah. And the people cheer him on in accomplishing what he has set out to do. Also in Psalm 132, we see God making promises. Promises to David and to his people. That we today rejoice in hope as we read these promises. This psalm is one of the psalms of ascent that we mentioned last week. One of the psalms that the people of Israel would have sung together, would have known as they journey up to Jerusalem to worship. And this is the longest one of the psalms of ascent. Some of you are probably saying, of course we had to choose the longest of them. The psalm is divided by promises or oaths. One by David in the first half of the psalm and the second by God in the second half of the psalm. The promises, oaths, are rooted in the history of God with his people. And they propel us into joyful obedience and abundant hope of what is to come. Number one, the first oath that we see is David. And this is the wording that is given right here in verse 2 of Psalm 132. David swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. The psalmist asks, uh, opens by asking or commanding that God would remember David and the story of how he promised to make a house for the Lord. It's an imperative. Remember David's favor. Remember, O Lord, all the hardship that he has endured. Then how David swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. 
The language of David's oath to God is pretty strong. Verses 3 through 5. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not rest or I will not sleep until I find a place for God to dwell. Maybe you said that. I won't rest until this is done. What is David referring to when he says, a place for God to dwell? What is he not going to rest until he accomplishes? Well, if we continue to read, we'll see in the next verse, verse 6, where the people are saying, we heard of it. And in the next phrase, we found it. As though we're still talking about the place for God to dwell. Found what? How does one find a dwelling place for God? Again, keep reading, and down in verse 8, the psalmist commands God to go to his resting place. Seems quite audacious for the psalmist to do, and yet he mentions, with the ark of your might. This would have been fresh on the minds of the people, thinking of God's presence in the ark of the covenant. The ark was where God's presence was found. That could be found. That can be put into a resting place. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, King David tells Nathan the prophet that he is dwelling at peace in his own house or a palace, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And so he, David, desires to build the Lord a house or a temple to house the ark. He's desiring to find a place for the dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. In the chapter that follows, in 2 Samuel 6, David has brought the ark back to Jerusalem. And if you would, turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel 6. We'll be in this portion of Scripture just a little bit this morning. But if you remember the story, or if you don't like me and have to go back and look at some of the details, you see how David is coming back into Jerusalem. How already leading up to this point where the ark is coming into the city of David, someone has died. You remember Uzzah, the ark is shifting on the cart, and Uzzah sticks out his hand to rescue the ark, as it were. And the Lord, in his anger, strikes Uzzah down. David's response to the Lord striking Uzzah down is anger at the Lord. How could God strike someone down for wanting to rescue the ark of the Lord? Well, as the ark rests there, because David is fearful of what God's going to do because of this ark, after a few days, David returns, and he brings the ark into the city. The ark of the Lord, verse 16 of chapter 6, in 2 Samuel, says the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. The people are cheering. The king, David himself, is leaping and dancing before the Lord. They're offering burnt offerings, peace offerings. And David is blessing the name of the Lord and his hosts. The ark of the Lord has come back into Zion, has come back to Jerusalem. The presence of God is necessary for the people of God. It all started back with the ark when, and God's presence with his people when Israel had been chosen as God's people. God brought them out of slavery in Egypt, delivered them through the Red Sea, and then revealed himself to Moses on the mountain gave his law to them at Mount Sinai. God was to be their God, and they were to be his people. And in his kindness to them, God reveals to them how this relationship is going to work. 
One of the most significant parts of God's relationship with his people was his presence there in the midst of his people as they encamped in the wilderness. And this was seen by a visible cloud during the day or a pillar of fire at night as the people traveled through the wilderness. When the people made camp for the night or for a while, the presence of God would rest on the tabernacle or as David says, the tent. The tent that God had the people make where they would offer sacrifices, seek atonement for their sins so that they could stand in the presence of God. So they could be in a right relationship with God through the work of the priests on their behalf. In that tent or tabernacle in the wilderness, there's a room, the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could enter and at that only once a year. The high priest went in to make atonement for the sins of the people by sprinkling the blood of animal sacrifices on this very ark, on the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence dwelt. This had to be a terrifying and yet grace-filled experience for the high priest and the people of God. Terrifying because the high priest was coming into God's presence, but full of grace because God was atoning for the sins of his people. What did the ark contain? What was so special about it? Other than the fact that it was where God's presence rested, the ark contained historical elements of the relationship of God to his people. And it is referred to as the ark of the covenant because it signified the covenant God made with his people at Sinai. The redemption that he gave to them, how he had delivered them, provided for them and shown them grace. All of this in a box, overlaid with gold, that signifies the presence of the Lord. A covenant is another word for a promise or an oath. God was making a promise with his people that he would dwell in the midst of them. His presence would be with them. He would be their God. And they were promising to be his people by keeping his law that the ark contained. But things, as you know, maybe didn't always go so easy for Israel. You see, there's this thing called sin that's so prevalent in all of us fallen human beings. Even though we know God and have great intentions of obeying him, we are still proud and arrogant. We forget God and think that we can do everything on our own. Israel fell into this just like I do. And in one instance, it cost them the Ark of the Covenant. The story is told in 1 Samuel chapter 4. They were fighting the Philistines, and they were losing, and they were frustrated. And in fear, not knowing what else to do, and not seeking God and His desire for them at the moment, thought they could use the Ark as sort of a lucky charm or a secret weapon against the Philistine army. And the story is recounted that the Philistines heard the cheering and rejoicing of the people of Israel and wondered what it was going on the side of those who are losing the battle. Usually they're not cheering. They're, they're crying. They're in fear. They're running away. So it says that all of a sudden the Philistines found out what it was that they were cheering about and found out that they must have a God on their side. The text is helpful for us in that it lower cases G for God making it clear that God was not with Israel, but a lucky charm, a small g, God, might have been with them. 
So the Philistines were a little bit afraid. And instead of turning around and saying, goodness gracious, they must be able to win this battle. They have a God on their side. They muster up their courage. And what do the Philistines do? They win the battle and they take the God to be on their side now. If this thing is so lucky, let us have it. So they take it. And that didn't turn out too well for Israel to try and use this box, this Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence had rested as sort of a lucky charm or as a secret weapon. But you might also remember that it didn't work out so well for the Philistines either. You see, what the Philistines did not realize was that this is not a lucky charm. This is not some secret box that just contains historical documents, but that this is indeed where God has said, my presence will dwell among my people. And so God's presence dwelling on the ark in the midst of the Philistine army wreaked some havoc, and the Philistines desired to put it away from them, never to see it again. So they attached it to a cart led by two cows and sent it away as far as they could. We don't want anything to do with this ark, and it comes back into Israel's hands. You see, all of a sudden, the people of Israel are playing around with what is to be God's presence. It comes back into Israel's possession, and years later, 20 years later or more, David uh, remembers, finds it in Kiriath-Jerim, and decides to bring it back into Jerusalem so that God's presence is back in Zion. This is the promise that David is swearing to the Lord back in Psalm 132, that I will find a dwelling place for you, a place for you to rest. This is the promise that he has made, and yet the promise is not completely fulfilled because, as we saw in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that David desired to build a house for the ark to dwell in. David had all of this zeal for the Lord and for his glory, for his presence to be able to rest within his people. And the psalmist is calling on God to remember the promises that he has made. To remember the promises that he has made, that he will be their God, that he will dwell in the midst of his people. The psalmist also commands the Lord in verse 8 to arise and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. A few years later, a temple is built for the ark. Solomon builds a temple, the ark is put into it, and then a few hundred years later, the Babylonians come and destroy Solomon's temple, and the ark that we have read about in the scriptures uh, that we know of exists no more. Here David is making a promise to God. He's swearing to the Lord, vowing to the mighty one of Jacob that I will do this, that I will bring the ark to Jerusalem. But the Lord would not let him fulfill all of it, in building a house, David was zealous. He exerted great effort for the worship of the Lord. He made promises to the Lord and desired to do them until his dying breath. Actually, as he's giving Solomon final uh, exhortations on his deathbed, one of the things that he mentions the most is Solomon's need to build the temple of the Lord. David had been storing away supplies for the temple to be built. So even though God had said, you won't do it, David was actively involved and making sure this was a priority for the people of God. You see, it was the king's duty, not first and foremost to protect his people from outsiders, from those who desired to fight against his nation, but to protect his people in the relationship with God, to make sure that God's presence was there in the midst of his people and his people submitted to the Lord himself. 
The second promise that comes in this psalm is that God swears. Look in verse 11, the Lord swore to David an oath from which he will not turn back. David makes a promise that he thinks that he can fulfill. He does indeed bring the ark to Jerusalem, but he can't quite fulfill all of it because it was not the Lord's desire. God said, your son's going to build a temple for the ark. You won't do it. David did everything that he could to make a promise come true. Just like every politician is going to make promises and then desire fully. They want these things to come true. You learn a lot about a person by what they really desire and what they really want. And here David really wanted to build a house for the Lord. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where he's really wanting to build a house for the Lord's presence to dwell in. Do you know what happens just a few chapters later? I don't know, 2 Samuel chapter 10 or 11. The sin with Bathsheba, where all of a sudden he either has an adulterous affair or he rapes her and then kills her husband, has a baby out of wedlock and the baby dies. All of these things happen just a few chapters after. You see, David was really exerting all this energy to bring God's presence into the midst of his people. And yet that energy was not there when it was a desire to do, and, uh, to do what is right for the king's in those days, to go out to battle when they should have, and, and not to look upon a woman to lust after her. See, as he exerted a lot of energy in one way, and yet not fully trusting in God in every way, not fully exerting his energies to not sin in another way. So God makes a promise. And let's just see if God keeps his promises the same way David does. Okay, so David was on trial. We found him to keep some of his promises, but not all of them, obviously. Here, God makes a promise. What's God's promise that God makes to his people? You read it there in the beginning of verse 11. The promise that he makes to David is that one of your sons, of your body, physically, one of your sons, I will sit on your throne forever. As you continue reading into verse 12, there's a conditional clause. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, their sons also forever shall sit on my throne. David, you will have someone from your own family, within your own lineage, sitting on the throne that you now sit on forever. What a promise that God makes. That's not all. Because notice as you continue in verse 13, not only does God promise that this is going to be the case, that there will always be a king who comes from David's line to sit on the throne, but beginning of verse 13, God also promises that this place, Zion, will be my resting place, my dwelling place forever. Here I will dwell. Why? Because it's a beautiful piece of land? No, because God says, because I desire it. And what the Lord desires is done. And then the Lord continues to promise blessing upon blessing upon his people. He will bless them with provisions. He will satisfy the poor with bread. He will feed the hungry. He will clothe the priests with salvation. And saints will shout for joy. He will lift up the seed of David. He will bring light to our path. For those who are anointed, he will prepare a lamp, a light to lead us. The Lord himself will lead us and guide us. He will clothe our enemies with shame, but on him his crown will shine. He's promising a son to sit forever on the throne. 
He's promising to dwell here in Zion forever. And to, his presence will bless the people. What incredible promises that God is making. If you would, again, and maybe you're still back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, but if you would take your Bible back there, I want to show you one thing. You see, as David is wanting to build a house for the Lord, the Lord comes to the prophet Nathan and says, it's not going to be David that does it, but his son who will build my house. But notice how the Lord continues to speak. This is what the prophet is supposed to tell Nathan. Uh, the Nathan, the prophet, is supposed to tell David. Beginning in verse 8, the Lord says to Nathan the prophet to tell to David, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you shall be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. But notice what he says in verses 8 and 9. Here is your identity. Here is what I have done for you. I brought you out of being a shepherd of sheep. I will make your name great. Like the great ones of the earth, I have been with you wherever you have gone. God's presence has been with you. David, you have been richly blessed. Your identity is no longer just as a shepherd boy who is here to calm the king with playing on his harp. But you yourself are a great one. You yourself are a king. I have already done this for you. The identity and the blessing that God has given to David already ought to be for him a reminder that God is a God who keeps his promises that God is faithful. You see, the promise that God kept to David was a promise God had made to Abraham. The promises God made to Abraham are ones of rich blessing to a people who didn't deserve it, but of land, seed, and blessing that God says, I will give you a land. I will give you more people than the stars in the sky, and I will bless you, and you shall be a blessing to all the nations. The promises God makes here in Psalm 132 are almost exactly the same. That God says, here is where my people will dwell. Here is where I will dwell. And I will forever have one to reign on David's throne. There will be a people. There will be a blessing. They will be a blessed people. It is my presence that will remain with them. All throughout Scripture, we can begin to trace this theme of the house of God or where God will dwell. All the way back to Genesis 28, God Get, uh, there's a story there of Jacob, and the story may be called Jacob's Ladder, where angels, Jacob has a vision, a dream, and angels are ascending and descending this ladder. And at the end of it, Jacob refers to a stone that he sets up as Bethel, or the house of God. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, as Solomon prays a prayer of dedication for the house of the Lord, he asks a question in the middle of his prayer. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? You see, we're making this house for the Lord. God's presence has dwelt in the tabernacle or over this Ark of the Covenant. But will God himself indeed dwell on the earth? Or will his presence appear like we've seen already? In Psalm 2, 
The psalmist there writes, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Are we still talking about Jerusalem? Are we still talking about King David? So, where is Zion now? If we were to read Psalm 132 and say, has God kept his promises, then we should be able to see things that have still remained or are occurring. There should still be a king on David's throne, and there should still be a Zion that we can look at and see God's presence is still dwelling there. Right? Because doesn't our whole salvation rest upon the faithfulness of God? If God's not faithful to bring about the results of his promises then he, should he be trusted for anything? I can't trust Genesis 1 if Psalm 132 proves to be false. So where is Zion? Did God keep his promises? Is there an offspring of David still reigning? Here's an interesting verse to throw into this. Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 48, we have a sermon by Stephen who he says this as he's preaching to the high priest and says, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophets said, or as the prophets say, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? So if we're not looking for a building, if the Most High himself cannot dwell in a house made of hands, then did he dwell in Solomon's temple? Does he dwell on the Ark of the Covenant? Or where is he now? Where is Zion? If God is only in the heavens and we worship him in spirit only, then his presence is not with us? And again, where is the offspring of David who is ruling on the throne? Did the sons not keep the covenant, and so thereby God's promises are all of a sudden null and void? He doesn't have to keep them? I mean, that's what it says in Psalm 132, if they keep my covenant. We might likely assume that they are just like David, their father, who a few chapters after showing some amazing language of respect and commitment to God, all of a sudden falls into gross sin. We might liken the sons of David to us, who after having these incredible moments with God are too, maybe likely to continue falling again and again into sin. Come to church and we're encouraged by the singing and by the scriptures and then on our way home from church are already biting our brothers and sisters' heads off or being pretty disrespectful to our parents or getting angry at our children, or shouting at one another. We typically shouted on the way to church growing up, but the way home might prove to be just as good or likely. Well, it's interesting how the New Testament begins, and you know this, I love genealogies in the Bible. Because one, I think we often overlook them because we think they're a boring list of names, but two, they are the story. They really are. Some have said that the Old Testament is merely one big genealogy, and we're just taking narrative inserts into it. The same can probably be said of all of redemptive history. 
See, when we look at history, not just as a mere list of facts, but redemptive history being how God has redeemed his people, then redemptive history is a genealogy with narrative inserts. It's a list of people's names who have been redeemed. And sometimes it breaks out a little bit to tell their story. So the genealogy begins in the New Testament. And guess what? We find that David is listed in the genealogy. So if David is listed in the genealogy, what are we looking for? A son, a follower, a descendant, right? And guess where the genealogy in the New Testament that lists David ends? At Jesus. And Jesus, guess where Jesus is born? In Zion, in the city of David. Jesus is also called Emmanuel, who is God with us. John 1 makes it really clear that the Word became flesh. The Word that was from the Old Testament comes and now has dwelt among us. It calls Jesus the light of the world. It calls Jesus the eternal Son, the eternal King. The King who will sit on David's throne is Jesus. Hebrews chapter 3 says this for us. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. See, house here means more than just physical building. But in this sense, where Moses is faithful, it refers to a people. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And get this. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6 ends this way. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Psalm 132 is looking for this eternal line of kings that will come. That's what the psalmist is, is promising, God is swearing, will happen. And all of that promise finds its fulfillment in Jesus. When Jesus comes as the eternal king from David's line, there exists no more need for another. Because Jesus will reign for all of eternity. God's faithfulness is seen in the coming of Jesus. His faithfulness to David and his promises to his people are found fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And the same is true of God's dwelling in Zion. God's dwelling in a land, God's dwelling in a house in Zion is Jesus who came born in the city of David. A God who is with us. A God who makes a house, a household instead of a physical building, and we are his house. And God is the maker of all things, it says. The builder of all things is God. The one who desires a house to be built by Solomon in the Old Testament is the same God who established the building of our spiritual house in Christ from the foundations of the world. So then when we read Psalm 132, we see line after line of the faithfulness of God, that God's blessing that has come to us has been richly given to us in Jesus, 
so that it's so much more. You see, David promises all these things that these physical house, uh, these physical uh, aspects where, God, I want to build something that you can dwell in. Stephen saying in Acts chapter 7, God cannot dwell in just a house made by man's hands. And that actually, that's not what we're looking for at all. What we're looking for is the spiritual house that God is building. And when God comes in Psalm 132 and what he promises is light years beyond anything that David is promising to him. What God fulfills to David is far beyond what David could have done for God. David, even in his inability to keep covenant, three chapters after, God says, if you keep my covenant, then I will forever put a son on your throne. He couldn't keep it for three chapters. Probably couldn't keep it for three minutes. If you're anything like me, you struggle daily with sin. We might even put the word hourly in there. I don't know. Most days. Hourly with sin. And how quickly do we look at our own effort and our own zeal instead of the faithfulness of God seen in the person of Jesus, the one who has come. As 1 Peter 2 says, a living stone rejected by men. The stone who has become rejected by men, chosen and precious. I'll just keep reading it. You yourselves, like living stones, are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Peter writes, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, in a rock of offense. That was promised in Psalm 132. The enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The honor is for you who believe. For those who believe the gospel, who see the faithfulness of God, is given to them in the person of Jesus. All of my efforts on my own to promise God amazing and great things will fail. But every promise of God has stood and all of my failings of my promises to God now find, as I believe in him, the cornerstone, find their yes and amen in Jesus. It is only in Christ that we are accepted by God, that we have honor, and that we can believe. So what do we do from here? I look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll read just a few verses. We'll finish with our hymn, and then we'll pray. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 begins this way in verse 1. For, if we, for we know that if the tent that is, earthly, that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. Listen to the themes that continue in this passage. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. 
We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You see, Jesus comes and his presence dwells on the earth. When Jesus leaves, his spirit comes and dwells within us. We no longer look for the ark in the midst of Zion because Jesus himself, the living Zion, has come and made his dwelling in us, ourselves. So we are always of good courage and our desire is to please him. And it's only possible that we can because of his presence that dwells within us. He is faithful. Look at the promise that is given in Psalm 132. Verse 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. The psalm that I'll read, or the hymn that I'll read in closing, as we've been doing through this series in the Psalms, closing with a song that we sing. These were songs that the people of Israel sang. We sing some of them today. But we sing this song regularly, written in 1923 by Thomas Chisholm. Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, our music team is going to come up, and we will sing uh, our final song in Christ alone. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be in your word this morning. Thank you for uh, the words of Psalm 132, the confidence that we can have that you are a God uh, who has promised, sworn oaths from from which you will not turn back. Grant us confidence in your faithfulness and in your goodness unto us because of your son, Jesus. And uh, in his name we pray, and to him and to you we sing in Christ alone.